And greetings to you all. Before I begin this morning, I have a couple, couple things, um, disclaimers, if you will. The first is, uh, this is a very similar um, message, in message, to what Brother Terry had for us last week in regards to sanctification. His was more from, shall we say, man's perspective and our responsibility uh, to cut off certain things, to pluck certain things out of our lives. Uh, and today's is more from God's perspective and what, what He does and how He works. Um, and then the second is, is not necessarily an apology, but just a, just a warning. There's a good chance I'm going to go long today. Um, so take that as you will. Uh, maybe to you mothers with children, I apologize. Uh, but uh, let's return to our book, our study in the book of Micah today. We will pick up the text in chapter 5. You're going to be looking at verses 10 through 15. And it's been several weeks since, since we last looked here uh, at Micah and this passage. And that, as, as such, I want to remind us of a certain, some certain words and phrases that we saw. Uh, and not only that we're going to see today, but what we saw last time in the earlier portion of this chapter. Going back to um, verse 1, we see this um, judge of Israel. And then in verse 2, we have one who will go forth for me, whose goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Verse 3, we have his brethren. Verse 4, he will be great. He will arise. Uh, Verse 5, and this one will be our peace. Um, In considering that and considering what we're going to see today, we see that the words and the overall message here of Micah, chapter 5 specifically, is, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the central character of here in Micah 5. Um, and while we must look at this book um, in the context of its time, it's directed towards a, a divided nation, uh, it's to an exiled Israel and to a, a, a Judah who, who is in danger um, from, from the Assyrian nation and her army. Um, it's directed towards the unfaithful, treacherous um, half of the kingdom of Judah and to the Jewish people themselves. While that is true, um, you and I have the gift of history. We have the privilege uh, of some hindsight here. We have further revelation to which these people didn't have. So while the Jews of Micah's day were indeed without excuse, for the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all His prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law that I commanded your fathers, and which I sent you through my servants the prophets, while they were without excuse. That is true, but you and I are actually in a more precarious position because of two revelations. One, because we have the complete revelation now 
of the words of Scripture. And as Paul wrote, that these things happened as examples for us, so that we may not crave evil things as they did. And two, because of the revelation of the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had it in in future, but we have it in hindsight that we can look back and see just who this Jesus was and is. And having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. So you and I are in a more precarious position than the people of Judah were when they were hearing these words for the first time. And so may it be uh, that you and I, as we read, as we hear, as we study, and consider, consider Micah chapter 5, verses 10 through 15, that, that we ask that God give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe, encourage to apply and cling to the truths that's, that are being communicated to us here in these verses. So let's read now Micah chapter 5, and I'm actually going to begin in verse 9 reading through the remainder of the chapter. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. It will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will root out your asherim from among you and destroy your cities. And I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. Blessed be God's Word. Well, as your eyes move through this latter portion of chapter 5, you will recall that verse 9 here is the transition point between a promise of of vibrant fruit, of vibrant fruit bearing, and a promise of radical pruning. And... These words were given to Judah um, when they were given to them. They were given words of hope and words of a future. Even though she was experiencing a besiegement, she was experiencing and looking in the face something contemporarily... um, as destructive forces, as the, the fiber of her national being being ripped apart. Uh, they were facing an apparent hopelessness and, and a cutting off of their future. But they're receiving words of hope and of a future. Yet, verse 9 is God's promise to His people that all your enemies will be cut off. It's a promise from the Lord. Yet, the following four verses is God's promise to His people that His cutting off will be directed towards His people themselves. 
It's a message that the enemy isn't just out there, but that the enemy is in here. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean when God says, I will cut off? The Hebrew word is karath. And this is a verb. It's a root word, which literally means to cut. To cut. Simple. The implication inherent, though, in this word is more along the lines of to destroy or to consume. And some synonyms or some examples for this word could be something uh, like to amputate, to circumcise, to prune, to hew down, words such as that. And the master teacher, Jesus, well, he likened God to Father, God the Father, to like a gardener, to a husbandman, to a vine dresser, and who prunes his trees and his vines. And he said this, he said, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. Listen, God is in the tree trimming business. He has a plethora of, and a variety of tools at His disposal. He has uh, chainsaws of every make and model, every size, with every different unique attachment. He has loppers and hedge trimmers, He's got skitters and, and those giant pieces of equipment with, with claws of steel that can hold an entire tree. He has axes and mauls and saws. He has wood, wood chippers and stump grinders. He's got skid steers with those mulching heads, those giant forestry blades. He uses, utilizes everything from those, those impressive... Um, tree-trimming boom saws that stick out 50 feet with a giant circular blade on the end. He has everything such as that down to, to hand shears, to precision scalpels. And from wholesale deforestation to very intimate, minute cuts, microsurgeries, if you will, the Lord God is concerned about His garden. And you know, God did plant a garden, didn't He? He planted a garden. And and in this garden, there was a variety of trees. Trees of every kind, yielding much fruit, variety of fruit, very good fruit. Um, And then He created a man, and He placed the man in that garden to tend and to keep it. But instead instead of following the Lord's example and His command and pruning these trees to bear more fruit and to extend the garden, instead of doing that, this man disregarded God's command. And he removed some of the forbidden fruit for himself. And in so doing, he ended up spreading thorns and thistles that spread farther and faster than he ever possibly could have imagined uh, until the very ground itself became cursed instead of blessed. 
And yet, despite this catastrophe, this complete and utter failure, God still loved the man. He still loved him. And so much so that he cut off the life of an animal, and I suspect a lamb, though we aren't told. He cut off the life of an animal in order to clothe his former manager's nakedness. He covered him. He protected him. He gave him what he needed. He cut a deal. And he made a covenant with this man and this woman. And he, he promised in this covenant that there would one day come a man who would finally stop the spread of these thorns and these thistles. This spread of death and disease and decay. In this covenant... Uh, about this man, it would take superhuman effort to make happen. It would forever change the face of the earth, literally. It would eternally change the trajectories of men and women. But in order to accomplish this impossible task, there had to be first a cutting off. And that's what we're going to look at first, a cutting off. And as we read these verses in Micah here, we see that the language here is future tense. It will be in that day, and I will. Judah was facing a very current threat. Not a future threat, per se, but a very current threat. But the Lord saw fit to give them future promise. And since you and I still do not yet see this tree of life, we do not yet see a tree of life surrounding a river of life, well, we recognize that this time is still yet future. It is still yet future. And of, of this futureness, we also spoke in regards to what we read in chapter 4. Well, secondly, in addition to this future language, we see and are reminded that this is a work of God. I will. Not you will. I will. And that's mentioned seven times here in these few verses. I will do this or that. And it must be so. For even at our most zealous, at our most energetic, at our most righteous point, we may indeed wholly, completely, lovingly, synergistically work alongside the Spirit in our sanctification and, and just completely remove some enemies from inside of our own hearts. We may completely do away with them, but the record of Scripture regarding man is that his zeal wanes and unbelief and complacency sets in very quickly. And hence, the Scripture gives to us phrases such as, you know, um, so-and-so did not drive out the Canaanites. Or, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, only the high places were not taken away. So they were obedient, but to a point. Or fully obedient, and then just they just fell off the wagon. And so it is that Judah is informed... That when God says in verse 9, all your enemies will be cut off, He has in mind 
all the enemies. All the enemies. In verses 10 through 14, they show us which enemies of Judah were the most dangerous. Which ones were the most sinister. Which ones were the most prevalent and deadly. And Judah is being instructed that in their cries for mercy from the Lord, in their cries for justice against the Assyrians, for judgment on the Assyrians, they need to understand first that judgment begins with the household of God. And that's the message that he's pointing out. And this judgment, it cuts through the epidermis, it cuts through the dermis, it goes down through the fascia, into and beyond the muscle, it takes a saw and it cuts into the bone down to the very marrow itself. Every layer of tissue is being addressed. Every layer of tissue is being cut through and into. It is systemic and it is systematic. The words of Scripture is that all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we have to do or before Him to whom we have to give an account. All things are open. And Judah's God begins His promise of freedom with a declaration of hostilities against the military of Judah. Oftentimes in the Scripture, whenever horses are mentioned, it's in reference to arms, to weaponry, to military might or prowess. And chariots, we have here in verse 10, is in reference to advanced weaponry or technology applied to warfare. It's faster transportation. It's more effective assaults. It's more efficient communication and leadership. It's overwhelming force. It's eyes in the sky. It's advanced weaponry. And now, what we have in verse 10 is not a discussion on the legitimacy of weapons or of defensive arms or even of whether a nation should or should not have a military. It's not a discussion of that. Uh, it isn't a discussion, should a, uh, should a nation have law enforcement? It's, it's not even a reprimand on the use of technology. Uh, even even in, in warfare, there's, there's plenty of scriptures that speak and and give explanation to the legitimacy of such things and of their rightness. However, what was very explicitly prohibited to Israel, to Judah, was the amassing of horses and chariots. For Moses gave this command in Deuteronomy 17 in regards to, it was a prophecy really, when he said, whenever you ask for a king, when you get a king, this is a command that comes after that. Moreover, he, that is the king that you're going to ask for and eventually get, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt. So it was a very explicit command to not amass and, and, and have a giant cavalry. Unfortunately, this very clear command was very clearly disobeyed by Solomon because um, he gathered chariots and horsemen, it says. And unfortunately, this Solomon, this was the very king to whom the nation 
in Micah's day was looking back, was reminiscing towards, towards those good old days, looking back to the days of Solomon when things were great. That's what they were looking back to. But it was Solomon who was king in those times who very explicitly disobeyed God's explicit command. And because Solomon, like I said, not only gathered these horses and chariots, but he gathered them from Egypt and he went beyond that and married the daughter of Pharaoh himself. And, And the Lord says, don't go back to Egypt. Don't amass horses. Well, lest Israel think that her greatness, that her... Uh, military might is going to be her means of victory over the Assyrians, over any of her enemies. Um, the Lord here is humbling her and stating that, that even though your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries and all your enemies will be cut off, even though that is true, He says, I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. And as Isaiah declared, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Woe to them. And who rely on horses and trust in chariots. Because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look on the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. He says, woe to you. Woe. To you, And so it is that the first thing mentioned which the Lord will cut off is the military. That legitimate arm of the government which utilizes the power of the sword to restrain evil, to defend its populace against foreign, against outside threats, against an occasional internal threat, but who, who bears the sword the Lord's going to cut off the military because the thing which the people or which most people look to uh, for national or regional defense and for security and protection are those official official branches of the government, those official uh, departments and agencies and organizations that exist for the express purpose of executing justice, for protecting and defending That's what most people look to right off the bat. Well, it isn't that these things are inherently evil, but rather that this is generally the first place that people and nations look. First place to where they go. So the first layer through which the Lord will cut is that which is most obvious. That which is right on the top. That which is easiest to be seen. Which gives the greatest appearance of strength and of might and of dependability and security. He will cut off things which are legitimate in and of themselves and appropriate in their place have replaced faith in God with faith in human ability, power, intellect, technology, training, tactics, weaponry. There's an inversion. There's a swapping of faith here, and so the Lord's going to cut it off. The second thing that we see in verse 11 that the Lord God will cut off are the cities of your land. And connected to this is the tearing down of all fortifications and strongholds. Well, cities 
actually are mentioned two times in this passage. I don't know if you caught that or not, but this is the first uh, here in 11 and the second's in 14. Yeah. Um, but there's two different usages here of cities. And in this first usage, cities are used in reference to their being centers of commerce and industry. Um, cities are places of security and defense. And we can think of castles in the medieval time. Like all the, all the villages surrounded the castle. And the castle was the place. It was the center of commerce, of industry, of, of, of rule and of reign. Uh, cities here are as technological centers. The place from which all progress uh, occurs from which inventions happen. Um, but there's also an element of cities here that are, that are utilitarian or robotic-like. And, and this aspect of the city is portrayed in things as the Borg or the Death Star or the, the Orcs of Mordor. That element of a city this aspect is portrayed in those ways. Um, and this same concept actually is inherent in the same transhuman movement of what's being discussed and, and talked about in certain circles today. Um, the thinking in all of these systems, in all of these systems of thought, is something along the lines that, that individuality is something that needs to be removed. That the individual doesn't matter. Only the state is of concern. Only the system matters. And in fact, the survival of society, the survival of, of creation itself, is dependent upon the city. It's dependent upon the system. And it's interesting to note that not only does this, this cutting off of the cities follow that of the military, but also that there is a connection here between city and army. There's a connection here between industry and military because it says the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications or strongholds. There's a connection between commerce and industry, between industry and military. And where have we heard this before? January 17th, 1961, President Eisenhower was giving his farewell address to the nation. And this former five-star general, and now former president, he gave this warning. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. 
the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We've heard this before. But when President Eisenhower said this, it might have been new to the American experience, but it was not new to history. And it certainly wasn't new to God or to the Scripture because we have this exact thing presented to us in Micah chapter 5, verse 11, right here. Um, God says that whenever a person, whenever a church, whenever a nation, a country, replaces him with a system, with a man-made safe place, with an amalgamation, or we might even call it a human trinity of commerce, politics, and defense, he will cut it off. He will cut it off. And did you know that this statement here of the Lord that's recorded by Micah, it wasn't given in isolation. It wasn't given just in theory. No, this statement of the Lord that He's going to cut off the cities of your land and tear down your fortifications, this statement against the the military-industrial complex, if you will, it was made in light of what was soon to come in relation to King Hezekiah. You know, King Hezekiah was considered a great and a very godly king, one of Judah's most bestest kings, shall we say. He prayed to the Lord and the Lord granted him an extension of life by 15 years. In 2 Kings chapter 20, um, after he had received this, this word of, of, a, of a mortal illness and upon which he, uh, he sought the Lord's favor and blessing from, uh, around that time, uh, Sennacherib shamely, shamefully departed uh, Judah because his, his army was just angelically destroyed overnight those 185,000. Sennacherib left, and we are told that about that time frame, Hezekiah became mortally ill. Deadly sick. He was going to die. And while he was sick, or, or uh, was recovering, or had recovered, something like that, Hezekiah received a condolence letter. He, sent, he received gifts. He received uh, an official delegation from the, the, the Babylonian nation. And we read in um, verses 13 and 20 of uh, 2 Kings 20 this, Hezekiah listened to them, that is the delegation, uh, and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of armor and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. And then in verse 20, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? What do we have here? We have a city. We have commerce. We have industry. We have defense. All of that is pictured in what Hezekiah did. All of that it pictures to us, it tells us the message that even good King Hezekiah fell prey to pride. He was trusting in his house of armor, his house of wealth, of riches. 
of all the things that he accomplished in industry, providing for the city in their defense. But the Lord would not overlook it. He called Hezekiah to account with mercy, but with judgment. Well, moving deeper into the third layer here of which the Lord will cut off, we read verse 12. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you will have fortune tellers no more. Here the evil seems easy to see. It seems plain. It seems overt. Witchcraft, sorceries, fortune tellers, soothsayers. Well, when, when these words are used to describe this practice, then yeah, it's easy to spot. When it says blatantly with a billboard, you know, fortune tellers, witchcraft, sorcery, when these words are used, sure, it's easy to see. But the problem is <coughs> that these terms, these practices, um, well, they fall into the category known as what? Occultic. Well, occultic or occult comes from the Latin word occultus, which simply means hidden. Hidden or secret. That's the problem. Well, thankfully, the scripture doesn't ignore and it doesn't deny the existence of these things. No, it doesn't, um, it doesn't hide the fact that there is witchcraft or sorceries, but rather it speaks of them plainly speaks of them openly and exposes them. It doesn't go into, into minute detail in the description of, of such things because um, it's a shame even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. It doesn't go into great detail, but nevertheless, the Bible does reveal and it does reprove such practices. Um. While I, I didn't do a, a comprehensive search for, for all of these words, this sorcery, witchcraft, um, soothsayer, uh, and, and fortune teller, I did a cursory look and I found over 50 or more different explicit usages of, the, of these words. Now, related words, I didn't go into depth, but um, 50 explicit usages relating to witchcraft. And in the scriptures, you know, you, you will recall these narrative accounts of, um, of diviners, of witches, of sorcerers, both Old and New Testament. You, you recall those narrative accounts. There's, um, there's admonitions and direct commands uh, against the practices of such things we find in the law specifically. Um, there's even a death penalty associated with the practice of witchcraft. Or sorcery. So the Bible speaks about these things. And, and listen, this is not just some innocent, harmless game. Noah Webster, he gave one definition uh, of witchcraft as this. Intercourse with the devil. Just let that sink in a minute. No, this is a seductive, addictive controlling power. The practice of witchcraft is an attempt to utilize, to manipulate demonic power and influence 
in order to achieve selfish goals. While this is the temptation, and while this is the appearance, this controlling and manipulating demonic power, the end reality is that demons end up exercising their power and influence over the man, over the organization, over the nation, in order for him or it to do their bidding. And it can become an inescapable enslavement. How do we recognize this enslavement? God said He's going to cut it off. How do we recognize someone or something or nation that's enslaved? It comes in the form of drug addiction. It comes in the form of sexual deviancy and even overt demonic possession. When you see a person or a nation that's characterized by these things, guess what it's involved in? The root of these things, it often stems from a desire to escape. Just to escape. To run away. And if you consider the word bewitched, Thayer's Greek Dictionary defines this as astound, amaze, to throw out of place, to put out of wits, to put out of mind, to make insane. To make insane. What is it? It's an attempt to escape from reality, whether in mind or body. An attempt to escape from reality. And by the way, what do you think Meta is? This changing of Facebook. What do you think that is? The Metaverse? It's an escape from reality. It's an alternate universe. Illicit drugs, illicit sex, illicit relationships, they promise escape. They promise superhuman feelings. They promise superhuman abilities. It's heard in the word, in the belief, in the teaching, even in the music of Nirvana, when it has, the Nirvana is this soteriological goal representing the release of a soul from karmic bondage. Get that? Soteriological goal. The goal of salvation from what? The release of a soul from bondage. Emptying your mind, an escape, coming into nothingness. Well, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book entitled Escape from Reason. And in this book, he describes many different uh, philosophical arguments that men propose in an attempt to do just that, to escape from reason. Or to put it another way, whenever man chooses to reject the truth... To, re- to reject the truth, to reject the truth uh, in a holy God, he is choosing to escape from reason itself. And as soon as he seeks that freedom, that escape, as soon as he seeks that, he is immediately enslaved and he embarks on an endless quest that results only in 
insanity. When you try to escape reason, you're going to be left reasonless. Whenever a person goes to a seance or visits a medium or consults a crystal ball or, or reads palms or intestines or bones or, or the molten metal that's poured into water, he's involved in murderous sacrifices or deviant sexual practices, that person is engaged in witchcraft. But guilt goes deeper than this. That's just the overt. Remember, it's occult. It's hidden. Guilt goes deeper. Because you don't have to be a practitioner of the evil arts to be guilty. I have two passages I want to read. Uh, One's in Leviticus 20. No, excuse me. Leviticus 20, verse 6. As for that person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. So that's one who turns to a medium, goes to them, not just is one, but there's a promise that the Lord will cut him off. And then we have this less subtle, or even more subtle rather, in 2 John verses 10 and 11, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, teaching about the Christ and who He is, what He's done, do not receive Him into your house and do not give Him a greeting. For the one who gives Him a greeting participates in His evil deeds. Guilt goes deeper than being a practitioner. Let me read a couple quotes from a man named David Benoit. People in America invest huge amounts of money to keep intruders on the outsides of their homes. Yet, through carelessness or lack of knowledge, they freely open their homes to entertainers and those involved in witchcraft who can spiritually and even sometimes physically seduce their children. He also says this, Witchcraft is not just for Halloween anymore. Our children are prime targets of these beliefs. 365 days a year, children are being preyed upon by witchcraft through the promotion of cartoons, toys, and games. This puts our children in a very vulnerable place. Remember how this falls into the category of the occult? Hidden? Some evidences of witchcraft and sorcery may be overt, but much of it is is hidden. Much of it is lurking, hiding in the tall grass. And and this is where Christians need to use discernment and hear the words of Christ when He said that we need to be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. You don't have to know all the ins and outs and all the details of these things to be wise about them. You just need to know the truth. And the truth will reveal it to you. You need to know 
the Spirit, and the Spirit will reveal it to you. You'll have a gut check. We truly are in the midst of wolves, people posing as sheep and as shepherds. Why will God cut off sorceries and witchcrafts? Because the actions, because the effects of this demonic evil, it seeks to destroy man, children, families, nations, the church. It seeks to destroy those things. Man who's made in the image of God. Children who picture the new birth of God. Families which serve as the institution of God. A foundational institution. It seeks to destroy nations because they display the governance of God. It seeks to to destroy the church because the church exists as sons and daughters of God, as the bride of Christ. He wants to destroy these things. So that which sets itself up against these things is demonic. It's witchcraft, sorcery. And God explicitly mentions these practices because they love to hide and they love to masquerade as harmless. But they aren't harmless. They're in reality demonic creatures. They are addictive activities and they are seductive people. And so He lays it out. I will cut them off. But He cuts deeper. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. Here we get down to the marrow. This is the heart of the matter. Worship. It's the heart of the matter. There is a reason that the first commandment is the first commandment and it regards worship. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. None. All of a man's security apparatuses, all of his strongholds, all of his fortifications, all of those things, all of his technology, all of his chariots, all of his weaponry, all of his horses, all of his pleasures, all of his idols, they point to man's main problem. And it's a problem of worship itself. And ever since Adam believed that eel in snake's clothing, and he attempted to escape reason by means of direct obedience, he allowed demonic influence into his mind, into his body, into his family, into his marriage, into the garden, into the earth. Why? So that he might become like God. Adam participated in the worship of a snake. He participated in the worship of his wife. He participated in the worship of himself. And in so doing, he and Eve and all of their offspring, that means you and I, were enslaved to the worship of the work of our own hands. Bowing down to the work of your hands. He disengaged his mind. Turn that switch off. By listening to the voice of a creature and suppressing the voice of the Creator. 
in order to pursue pleasure and to obtain power. To obtain knowledge. He flipped that switch off. He disengaged his mind. He believed a lie. Listen, truth is truth. Truth is truth. Belief is what you regard as truth. Belief isn't necessarily truth. Truth is truth. But belief is what you regard as truth. And actions reveal beliefs. So you have truth, you have belief, and you have actions. Actions aren't truth. Belief isn't truth. Truth is truth. So when a man carves, when a man engraves images, and he sets up pillars, what is he doing? He is stating very clearly, very openly, with clarity, in what or in whom he believes. Do you see that? How our actions reveal our beliefs. And our actions either confirm or deny truth. They confirm or deny Christ. Because Christ is truth. When Nebuchadnezzar, the king, when he made an image of gold, and he demanded what? That peoples, nations, and men of every language fall down and worship the golden image? What was he doing? He was displaying his belief, but he was God. Yeah. Well, it took quite a while for Nebuchadnezzar to finally admit the truth and humble himself before the one true God. But when he did, this was his personal account. You know we got the words of Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible? Yeah. He has Nebuchadnezzar's testimony here. He said this, At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored Him who lives forever. See how Nebuchadnezzar went nuts? He thought he was a cow. He lived like a cow. But when he humbled himself, his reason returned to him. And he worshipped God. The second half of verse 13 here in Micah 5 reveals to us why God had to go to such depths in His excision of sin within a person, within a church, within a nation. The only way to keep man from false worship and and from vain work is for God to remove the root from our hearts, to get a marrow transplant to get a heart transplant. We must be born again. The work of our hands, they just need to cease from carving and from digging. You know, they need to cease that because inevitably, we only make images of ourselves or what we'd like to look like actually. We make images of what we would like to be. And we just dig a deeper hole. 
So let's let God use the chainsaw. Let God use that excavator and dig it out. Die to yourself and live for Christ. Because he who has died is freed from sin. This cutting off here in verse 13 is God removing from our hearts, from our minds, from our hands, the practice of man-made idols, the practice of false religion, the practice of idolatry, and the practice of self-worship. What are those things? A man-made idol is anything that you or I intentionally set up and say, this is God, the golden calf. The false religion is any system of performance, duties, or work that is antithetical to the worship of the one true God. Judaism today. What is idolatry? Anything or anyone that is promoted by others or sets itself up as God. Satan himself. What is self-worship? It's any act that replaces the rightful reign of Christ with self. And so God wants to cut off all of those things. Before I move to verse 14, I want to just quickly look back at the phrase found in, in verse 11 that is, tear down or throw down. And all I really want to do is just to bring to our minds a quick visual here to help us understand what that means when he says, I'm going to throw it down, I'm going to tear it down, I'm going to cast it out. Um, is when we hear the word tear down or that phrase, we should picture a wrecking ball. That giant sphere of steel flying with that inertia, that energy smashing into a building, tearing it down. We need to think of a wrecking ball. We need to think of like a giant excavator with that thumb on there grabbing and just tearing it down. Or, or a giant, the largest skid steer you can think of just pushing against the building, knocking a block wall over. Imagine, imagine a building, imagine a rock face that's impregnated with, with explosives and they simultaneously ignite, and the whole face, the whole structure just collapses. It's torn, it's thrown down. Think about the images of of a mushroom cloud. Think about the Moab, that mother of all bombs, and its explosive power, and it tearing down, it throwing down anything that's, that's right there. God will demolish all of our fortifications whether they're mental, emotional, physical, He's going to tear them down. He's going to tear them down. Anything that we have built as a means of protection against Him. It matters not into which cave or hole in the ground that we're hiding. He can reach us. He will demolish any rock. He can and will reach you. Now in verse 14 we have this, and the terminology shifts slightly again. Instead of cutting off or tearing down, he says he will root out. And we need to think of this not like spraying a little roundup on that dandelion that grows in your driveway. No, think of it more like a bulldozer or an excavator. This is a violent ripping, a digging, a pulling event. 
just completely removing the obstacle. We need to ask, what is God going to root out? What is this? this these groves, this asherah or asherim. What are, what's our groves? What's our asherim? That's clear as mud. Why is God going to tear up groves? What in the world's an asherah? Well, the Hebrew word asherah is used 40 times. And in the King James, I think it's exclusively translated grove or groves. And, and asherim is simply plural of that. Okay? So these groves, these trees, these poles, what were they? They were symbols of a Canaanite goddess whose, guess what, whose name was Asherah. So whether it's a planted tree, whether it's a, a fabricated pole, whether it's a, um, um, just a, I don't know, something that's, that's made or just stuck in the ground, they were intentional symbols of this Canaanite goddess. And, and I read somewhere that the name that the Phoenicians had for this goddess was Astarte. And possibly even this Ashtoreth of the Sidonians. I'm not sure. But in short, she was supposed to be a female fertility goddess. A mother goddess, if you will. Who along with... Um, you. Arctic, I forgot the nationality, but uh, this other god named El, which literally translated means God, but she, Asherah, along with El, were supposedly to have, um, she was supposed to be her, uh, what's the word, not a concubine, but a, a consort of El, and they together produced other gods. And you can search through the scriptures and, and, and through history and see this pop up everywhere. Her equivalent Greek goddess is, is um, Aphrodite, and the Romans, uh, Venus. And maybe there's, maybe there's some other references here. Frankly, I got tired of looking and, and digging into all this mythology. It was too confusing and, and just whatever. But regardless of who she was or who she's named after, the end result is this. Regard, the issue is nearly always the same, and that is the worship of nature and the worship of sex. That's what it boils down to here. Temple prostitution and the worship of Mother Earth. Uh, and it's just a yet another way to rob God of His rightful worship. But the interesting thing here is that there's again a connection between Asherah and the second mention of cities. These cities here have different packaging. They're represented as centers of influence. What greater influence upon society exists than apart from a mother? Cities are pictured as places of art and culture. And there's a reason why mothers are often called homemakers. They're creators of culture. They're creators of a home. They're artists. They are creators. These cities are cities of community. When they would plant groves, it would be like a community worship center. That's the place where you go and worship and do other things. Worship with quotes. Um, But, you know, cities 
they have their own personality. Just like people have their own personality or, or companies or organizations or nations. Cities have their own personality. And, and um, usually they're known for this or that or the other thing. And we see that in some of the names we have for cities. I mean, Music City. Okay, that's an easy one here in Tennessee. Music City. We have the Windy City. We have the city that's known as the Gateway to the West. We have the Scripture City known as the Tower of Babel. Right? That's what they're known for. Um, well, typically, what we are known for is an indicator of what we value. We value music. We've known just because we've got a lot of wind here. We're known for this great tower. What we value teaches us what or whom we worship. So what are we known for? That teaches us our values and that teaches us perhaps who we're truly worshiping. Well, people of like minds, they congregate together. They have shared values and they worship together. These are communities. These are shared ideas, shared values, shared beliefs. And this is why church community is so vitally important. That we have the same values, the values of Christ. We have the same ideas, the words of Christ. So the cities in verse 14 are, are different from those pictured in verse 11 because this is the earth-loving crowd. This is pictured in those themes such as the Shire. It's pictured in the Jedi. And they, they have the, the in touch with the power of the universe. See, these themes are all around us. And it's not that one's okay and one's not. It's they're both realizations of the same evil. So we need to be careful. It's pantheism. It's the worship of everything. That everything is God. Earth is God. Creation is God. Well, we must remember that verses 10 through 14, contextually, is directed towards Judah. And they are still not serving God. There's still a time yet future that the Jews will turn to Christ in mass and be converted. But regrettably, this conversion of the Jews neither has happened, but it will also first require a cutting off a cutting off so great, so painful, that she's going to be utterly empty without anything. Can you imagine something worse than the Holocaust? How bad does it have to get? But it's going to be so bad and so great that she's going to see her desperate need for God, for her great and her beautiful Messiah. It's directed towards Judah. But we can also say that these verses are primarily directed towards the children of God that encompass Jew and Gentile. And ultimately, what both Christians and Christ desire is the complete removal of the presence of sin. The complete removal from that from within the body, within the bride of Christ. We want to be 
completely holy. We want to have clean white garments. We want that cancer completely removed. Not just to be in remission, but as if it was never there. That's what we long for. That's what Christ longs for. He's waiting for that wedding celebration. He's waiting for it. And we are too. In a word, this is glorification. It's the process of sanctification that gets us to glorification. And towards this end, Christ purifies His church. He purifies them. He does it systematically. And He cleanses, He, he, he consistently, consistently sanctifies each believer and commands that we be conformed to the image of Christ. Each one, He cuts off everything that stunts our growth, everything that dampens our zeal, that hinders our service. He removes everything that supplants His rightful reign. And it's done out of purifying, cleansing love. It's done out of sanctifying love. It's done to humble man, to cast down his false gods, and to exalt the one true God. And judgment begins with the household of God. It begins with you and I. But verse 15 reminds us that it isn't just the household of God that stands before God in judgment. All men will stand before the judgment seat, believer and unbeliever. And those who are not the children of God are going to be recipients of the anger and wrath of God because they don't have a substitute that has borne the wrath for us for them. Those who have not obeyed will be unable to withstand His power. Um, Their weaponry will have no effect against Him. There's no place that they can flee from His presence because the Lord declares, do I not feel the heavens and the earth? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to hide? To what fortification shall you run? There shall be no God to whom they can flee. Nobody's going to defend them. Nobody can defend them. All of their own works, they're going to crumble to the ground. None of your righteous practices, none of your rituals, none of your good deeds, it's going to do anything. It's not going to matter how intricately you have woven or engraved these poles or put these beautiful garments upon the poles. It doesn't matter. They're not going to hold any weight against the crushing terror of an almighty God. None of your familiar spirits are going to be able to defend you. Nothing is going to be able to charm away the evil that's coming towards you, towards your impending doom. The Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And obedience to God is universal. I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. Obedience to God is universal. It's obligatory. It's mandatory. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what becomes of the ungodly and the sinner? This worship this obedience, this salvation of man 
It comes only as a result of the Lamb of God being cut off from the face of the land of the living. Our obedience to God is only as a result of of Him being cut off. Our being able to worship God comes as a result of Him being cut off. Even though man destroyed the tree with its fruit and that garden entrance was barred, yet we are told that a city shall come down out of heaven. And in that city is the tree of life. In that city is a water of life. And that tree of life has twelve kinds of fruit and no longer will there be anything accursed. Nothing. No more sin. No more sorrow. Everything will have been cut off, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. That Lamb who was slain, that Lamb who was cut off, the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. So, who are you going to cut off? Yourself or Christ? Whom will you worship? Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, before your throne we come and we hear these, these beautiful yet terrifying words that tell us you're going to cut us off. You're going to take everything so that you might be worshipped. Lord, we dare we ask for this? Lord, yes, we do. Help us, Lord, to desire Christ above everything. Anything. More than life itself. That's what you ask from us. To trust me. What is it to believe in Christ? It's to trust in Christ alone for salvation. Lord, continue to sanctify us, to cleanse us, to take away this sin. Be merciful towards us. Be merciful towards us, Lord, that we desire not sin, but we desire Christ. Take it away. Remove it. Cut it off. Dig it out. Tear it down. Lord, and hasten the day when faith shall be sight. Hasten the day, Lord, when it's no longer a struggle. Strengthen us, Lord, for the battle today but bring about the victory. We praise you and we thank you and we pray through Christ. Amen.